Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be tonight. If you're just joining back with us, if you didn't make it back last week, we are in Luke chapter 1. We are continuing our series in Luke and now going back to what we might call the Christmas passages with one of the longest and often most neglected chapters in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1 has 80 verses. That's a long chapter. And there's a lot that happens in that chapter, and we're continuing to dive through that tonight. We come tonight to the story not only like we left off last time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had waited so long for a child to be born, and again and again, nope, nope, nope. And finally, the Lord answers their prayer, and He does so in a mighty way after so much time to usher in John the Baptist's birth and really do great things through him. And now we're going to get to see Gabriel's interaction with a young girl named Mary and what all happens with that. And the, the idea that um, she is now going to be the only person in history to have a child born uh, from a virgin birth. And we come to that this evening. When I was... Um, uh, well, I guess I'd say, let me start it this way. When my oldest daughter was in kindergarten, we found out we were expecting our third child, my daughter Annabelle, who's now seven, eight years old, uh, somewhere in there. I, I'll check later. <laughs> <laughs> I believe she's seven, but we've got four, you know. You can't expect to remember everybody's age. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She's seven years old. And, um, and my oldest daughter, Avery, was excited when, we, when she found out we were going to have another baby. When uh, my second child, Josiah, was born, she wasn't old enough to really know what was going on, but this time she got a chance to be excited about a new baby that was going to come uh, into the household. And so one day, we, uh, she was in kindergarten at the time, we came to where she was doing some coloring, you know, on a piece of paper at the table, and sure enough, she was drawing a little baby. And we sort of looked over her shoulder while she was drawing, and she drew the outline of this child and some little clothing. And then all of a sudden, she started to color in the child. And um, she, she got a magic marker and started drawing. And I remember kind of coming and looking over her shoulder a little ways into that. And, and I said, um, said, Avery, who are, you, who are you drawing? And she said, well, I'm drawing the baby that's going to be born. And I said, wow, that's, that's really neat. Um, why are you using the really dark magic marker? And she said, well, you know, as I've gotten a chance to make friends, and some of them have, you know, lighter skin, and some of them have darker skin, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping this time that my sister might have dark skin like some of my friends. <laughs> and, I, and I said... Um, I said, Avery, that's beautiful that you, you know, you want that, and that's really wonderful. I'm so proud of you for feeling that way, and I think that's just a beautiful thing. Um, but Avery, if that happens, um, Daddy's going to have some questions for Mommy. <laughs> we come to a passage in Scripture that if we're not careful, we can take it really lightly, but do you, do you grasp how incredible it was for Mary for the rest of her life to try to communicate to people and how unbelievable it would have been for them to receive the reality that God, through a work of the Holy Spirit and an angelically announced occurrence, has now allowed her to give birth to God the Father's Son through a, an immaculate, a virgin birth taking place. How unbelievable and how incredible this is. 
If you were to read scholarly works of different people who sort of are somewhere on the spectrum between being Christian or maybe going so far into the, you know, the vein of not believing certain things that they, you know, fall out of that category at some point, there are people who are scholarly people looking at the Bible who believe the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they say the part that I can't believe is the virgin birth. They're willing to accept that Christ, having died and was crucified and buried after three days, rose again in the power of God, but it's too much of a stretch to believe that Jesus could have been born in the way that we see given here both in Matthew and in Luke. And so we look tonight at a story that if we're not careful, if you've been in church for a while, we might take as just sort of a given, but it's incredible and it's a miracle. And it's the way in which God chose to set apart Jesus from every other person who would ever be born because Jesus, while he is like us, is also unlike us. And it's in that unlikeness that our hope has been found, hasn't it? That Jesus is given for us the hope of glory, which is him in us, Paul says uh, in the book of Colossians. So we come to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 26 tonight. And I invite you just to read along with me. We're going to go a little ways, stop a bit, then we'll go a little ways further, and we'll do that uh, as we just step down the sheet. We do have some sheets up here at the front. If anybody needs them, you're certainly welcome to get them. Uh, I did give you lots of blanks tonight to fill in, so uh, I'll try to make up for it next time and give you less maybe. Uh, I'll just bank those credits for later on. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, would you speak as only you can through your word? May we see the example of Mary and the promise of the Lord Jesus and find hope and that anything that we deem impossible is possible through him. And so, Father, would you speak to us as only you can in the name of Jesus? Amen. All right, got a few things to give you here tonight on your sheet. I'm going to try to stick to that and walk right down the list. But I love how this passage starts off because you see this real balance between Elizabeth and Mary. When we left off last time, verses 24 and 25, Elizabeth has finally, after five months, been willing to come out in public and to say, yes, I am expecting a child. 
And that sort of seems to indicate to me a, a sort of educated guess, if you might say. She's walked through perhaps not only the difficulty of not being able uh, to, to be pregnant, but perhaps not being able to keep a child to full term. And so it's five months in that she's saying, I just, perhaps in her mind, saying, I'm just a little bit nervous to be fully believing until this point. So at five months, she finally says, you know, I, I feel good enough about getting in front of people because I, I don't want to get in front of people and then, you know, something go wrong. But after those days, verse 24, Elizabeth conceived for five months, she kept herself hidden. This is what she says in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus as he looked at me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth's life up to this point, at least her adult life, her married life, is not being able to complete her resume, complete her desire for what it would mean. In the ancient world especially, there was this sense that a wife truly had not fulfilled her obligation and had not been all that she could be if she wasn't able to have a child. And so Elizabeth perhaps facing or feeling some sort of scorn or reproach from people, she deals with not being able to find favor in other people. And interestingly enough, Mary is now going to be blessed with a child, and instead of her child bringing the favor of people, more than likely it's going to do the opposite. The first thing that I say here tonight, Elizabeth and Mary each show God's sovereign plan despite the people's scorn. Elizabeth and Mary each show God's sovereign plan, that God knew what He was doing all along. There was no eraser for His chalkboard. And His sovereign plan in that all along the way, despite the people's scorn. For years and years, Elizabeth has had to face what she feels is the reproach of people around her, saying, if you really were all that great, God would have blessed you with a child. Yeah, you may be from the priestly line, but it sure doesn't seem like God's favor is with you because you haven't had a child. And now Mary, for the rest of her life, at least for many years perhaps to come, she's going to be facing the whispers and the wonder and, well, you know, we don't know exactly what happened and blah, blah, blah. This is what Mary says, but the favor of people more than likely is going to be drawn away from Mary in order that she might embrace the favor of God. That little point A that I've got there, it says just that. Mary gave up the favor of mankind for the favor of God. Mary gave up the favor of mankind for the favor of God. Boy, those are great days when we got both of those, isn't it? When we've got the favor of people and the favor of God. It doesn't get any better than that. But all of a sudden, when we have to choose whether we want the favor of God or the favor of people, that sometimes is a harder choice. Well, you know, Sure is hard. Have people think this or that or have people feel this way about me or that way about me. Mary gave up the favor of mankind for the favor of God. Jesus in John 8 is having a discussion with a lot of people in the temple courts. And that passage is famous for him saying at the end of it, before Abraham was, I am. You know this passage? Where Jesus is given this resounding truth of who he is. John 7, John 8, you can look it up later. It's one of those chapters, just in case I'm wrong here. You're a little nervous sometimes. I can remember these things when I'm not in front of all these people, Frank. You know what I'm talking about? 
John 7, John 8, right in there, Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. A little bit before that statement, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He's talking about how they're not true sons of Abraham because they haven't believed in the promise that was given to Abraham. And the Pharisees start getting real upset and they say, we're not illegitimate children. Thirty-some years later, perhaps Jesus and his family have still not outrun the rumor mill about Jesus' beginnings. There are many, I'm one of them, who believe that statement was given by somebody who'd done some digging to say, well, who is this Jesus? Where'd he come from? What's his family line? Oh, okay, well, there's some people in that town that say, I don't know exactly what happened there. I don't know how many of y'all might still be dealing with things that were 30-some years ago. That's a long time. That was the 1980s. That was back when you could go to the mall and have a good evening. There was stuff to do 30-some years ago. And Jesus is still dealing with that. Mary more than likely would have dealt with that for the rest of her life. But she gave up the favor of mankind in order to embrace the favor of God. And she made the right choice. And so coming right out of where we left off with Elizabeth and Zechariah, we, we saw about the fifth month in verse 25, and then we come to the verse 26, and it's now the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The, uh, some of your Bible translations translate that Greek word polis. You know, if you've ever said the word metropolis, that comes from that Greek root for city, but Nazareth was not a city. Town would be the probably best translation for that. It was a town, it was a village, it was a small place. Galilee was the forgotten part of Israel in some ways. It was the most, you know, nobody concerns themselves with that portion of Israel at the time. And one of the most people do not consider that worthy portions of Galilee was Nazareth. I got a chance to preach a uh, homecoming a few weeks ago at a friend of mine's church who serves uh, up in a, a place northeast of here a couple hours, few hours. And uh, one of those places that if you weren't trying to get there, you'd never go there. Towns that the interstate doesn't go through there, the highways don't go through there. You don't go through there trying to get somewhere else. You will never go there unless you're trying to get there. And if you've never been there, you've probably never heard of it. And Nazareth was that kind of place. God's desire was to take the nowhere town in Israel and to bring about what he had planned uh, for the redemption of humanity to a city, to a town of Galilee named Nazareth. Here's a picture of what Nazareth looks like now. You got sort of that nice, you know, dichotomy of the old and the new. You got the sheep on the hillside. And if you can just close out everything in the top view, you can get a little bit of a sense, but some hills overlooking a little valley. This is the place that, uh, this is how it looked in the 1890s before it got all built up. This is an 1800s photochrom image that was colored in from a negative. But this was the area where it was believed, uh, the Virgin's Fountain, where Gabriel visited Mary. Uh, now I believe there's a, uh, a church there of some kind. But you've got uh, this, this sense of um, the area where, uh, where the angel came was this forgotten place to many in Israel. And so uh, one artist's rendition of this is just a, a young girl, Mary. We don't know exactly, exactly how old, uh, but more than likely a teenager uh, of some, some kind. Um, I, I tend to lean personally towards an older teenager, not some, some range that pretty young. 
Uh, but she was betrothed. She was uh, awaiting marriage to a man. Many of you have been in church a while. You know that betrothal is more than an engagement, less than marriage. There might be some of you in here in this room at some point who um, were engaged, and then at some point you were not engaged anymore. And um, my dad liked my mom so much, he tried out engagement twice. And so he was engaged to her once and then stepped back a bit and then got engaged again. And thankfully, my grandfather let him back in the house and uh, he was able to, to marry her. And so um, engagement's a little bit less binding than what we see here. Betrothal was a legal agreement, but at the same time, still awaiting marriage to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, you might be familiar as we read through some of this passage, you will see some language that you say, well, this sounds vaguely familiar, particularly when we get to Elizabeth's greeting and she says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 42. There was a man named Jerome that was one of the early church fathers in, I believe, about 400 or so A.D., and he did something that um, was a noble idea, but has often not worked completely in the favor of church history when someone has attempted it. And that is when someone has attempted to translate the Bible on their own, by themselves. And Jerome did that because he, he felt the need for people who were speaking Latin at the time to have the Bible in their own language. It was a very noble idea to say, let's take the, the Bible and translate it into Latin. Jerome also found that he struggled with sin the least when he was doing translation of Greek and particularly Hebrew. <laughs> and so uh, that gave him plenty of time uh, to keep his, his hands busy and his mind busy on, on translating the Bible. If you've ever heard of the Latin Vulgate, that is essentially the translation that was done by Jerome. And some things Jerome got right, other things he didn't really probably translate as best as he could. And it was during the Reformation, as many were going back to translating the original language, that they found out that when Gabriel came to Mary, the New Testament did not say that Gabriel said, Hail Mary, full of grace. He said, Greetings, Mary, favored one. Now the difference becomes the greeting on the one was not the greeting to a superior, but a simple greeting. And at the same time, the favor and the grace was not pouring out from Mary. The favor and grace was coming from God to Mary. She was not the one to give the grace and to give the favor. She was the one receiving the grace and favor of the Lord. And so in this, we come to the passage and Gabriel begins the statement by this, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, if an angel came to you and said that same thing, I don't know how you'd react, but Mary has the reaction that some of us might have. And she sort of stands there with a look on her face to say, what am I about to be asked to do? What is, what is going on here? You remember Gideon, when the angel visits him and says, uh, greetings, mighty warrior. And Gideon looks around and goes, me? Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Is there anything better than an angel being able to come to you and say, you're favored? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you've found favor 
with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You know, Matthew's gospel breaks this down, and if you were to do a word study, you'd see this. The name Jesus means our God saves or salvation. The name Jesus means our God saves or salvation. Could he have made it any clearer for us? So when, you know, it's almost like if you've, if you've studied Native American history, you know, somebody's name might be, you know, uh, barks at the moon or something, you know, just really literal. And when you're saying it, you're saying this literal form. For most of us, our name, we've had to look up in a dictionary or somewhere to find out what it means. We don't naturally speak the meaning. We've, the meaning's been hidden over time. But uh, Yeshua, this word translated Joshua in the Old Testament, and Jesus, once it passes from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English, we get Jesus. When you've got those that are there, that's, that's a literal rendering of our God saves or salvation. Every time Jesus' name was said, that truth as a reminder was being spoken. And so Jesus means our God saves or salvation. Uh, the title otherwise that's given to Jesus as well in this prophecy that is to come, that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus' title name, that he is God with us, and his name meaning salvation or our God saves. God made it obvious. Here's who Jesus is meant to be. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But then Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, you know the uh, prophecy in Isaiah, many of you know this idea that uh, this, this put forth to say that the virgin will give birth. And there are those who say, well, that word can also, if you really try, it can be translated just young woman, that the young woman will give birth. We come here to Luke chapter 2, and perhaps the word is being used in that same way. And that argument holds up maybe until you get to verse 34. When the angel says, well, here's what's going to happen and here's how it's going to be. And it doesn't make sense for Mary to ask, well, how can this be since I am a young lady? No, well, how can this be since I have not known a man, since I am a virgin? The third point I've got for you on your sheet tonight, and it's very important for us to realize, the virgin birth is foundational to Jesus' story. The virgin birth is foundational to Jesus' story. Sometimes in church life, we talk about primary issues and secondary issues, and if you want to use a fancy word, tertiary issues, those third-level things, you know, uh, can you put your hands up in church or not, or, you know, those kind of things that you get way down on the list about fighting about things don't matter. Um, the, The door should be this color instead of that color, and the carpet should be this instead of that. Those things are way down, but there's also some foundational primary issues of the gospel. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his resurrection wasn't simply an allegory for something else. It wasn't a spiritual occurrence that couldn't have been physical. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised, then our faith is in vain. And so everything rises or falls on the resurrection. And likewise, 
The virgin birth points us to the fact that God in his mercy knew that there could come no one from the human race who could save mankind. And so there had to be an exception made and God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that any who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There was one candidate who could be the Messiah in the way the Bible called the Messiah to redeem mankind, and that was God's only son. So Philippians chapter two, he emptied himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross that Jesus left heaven, left glory. And there's a a Christmas song by a guy named Chris Rice that was real popular when I was in college. I remember one of the verses goes like this, and so rap, our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sin and make us holy. Perfect son of God. Perfect son of God. This is what Jesus has done. He's wrapped our injured flesh around the eternal nature of himself in order in becoming like us to rescue and redeem us when we could not rescue and redeem ourselves. You come to person after person in the Old Testament that if you were reading the Bible for the first time, you might come to people like David and Solomon and Samson and Gideon. And if you're not careful, you'd find yourself saying, this guy's going to be the one. I can tell this is a great person right here. And it won't be too long before you find out, no, not good enough to be the Messiah. Because we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was one candidate and his name was Jesus. And if he was going to come, this was the way that he was going to have to come. And so point A that I've got there, I've got a word that, uh, I don't know if it's a real word, but it's used in a lot of commentary. So I'm going to give you a fake word. If it's not real, you can write it down. Jesus's sonship, S-O-N-S-H-I-P. Jesus's sonship, Being the son is the foundation of his Messiah role. What does that mean? That means that the person who was going to be the Messiah certainly couldn't be elevated to becoming God's son. The primary thing wasn't that we were going to start with the Messiah. No, the primary thing was we had to start with the perfect son of God in order to ever have a Messiah. And so the Messiah was secondary to who uh, the, the relationship of God's son was going to be to humanity. And so Jesus' sonship is the foundation of his Messiah role. If you ever have a conversation with a Muslim, more than likely they've had a conversation with their imam. And one of the points that they are taught usually is that the Bible never says that Jesus is God's son. You can just about open the New Testament and drop your finger down to a page and you will find somewhere where it is stated in clear terms that Jesus is God's son. One of the passages you could take them to is here in Luke 1, verse 32, he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so Jesus' sonship is the foundation of his Messiah role. And so when Mary asks, well, how can this happen? What's, 
what's, what's going to take place. She's not showing doubt, but she's asking an inquisitive question here that I'm, I'm betrothed, but I haven't known a man. How is this going to take place? Listen to what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The overshadowing language, this point B that I've got there underneath number three, the overshadowing language of verse 35 echoes the presence of God in the tabernacle, the temple, and the transfiguration. The overshadowing language of verse 35 echoes the presence of God in the tabernacle, the temple, and the transfiguration. My daughter Annabelle's in her Sparks class right now, and she's trying to say all the books of the New Testament. And she does real good until she gets to the end of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then sometimes she doesn't quite know where to go. And I said, sweetheart, if you can remember five T's, you can get almost all the way through the rest of them and just round out a few at the end. Five T's, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus. And so we've been working on five T's all week long. Maybe that's how I came to three T's here in this little thing. You can remember this, that the overshadowing language mirrors what's happened in the tabernacle, the temple, and the transfiguration. Pastor Brandon's getting ready to lead us through a series as we approach the holidays on Sunday mornings, focusing on the Old Testament and, and passages which point us to some different uh, important things. And I think there's going to be a lot of parallels with where uh, we're walking here in Luke's gospel and with the holidays. And this reality that the presence of God was manifested in such a way with his people that it was visible. What would that be like? To see that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire, what would it be like to stand outside the temple on the days when Solomon was there and the glory of the Lord fills that temple and surrounds it in such a way that it was visible? There's times in our life where we say, boy, I just really believe God's with this person or that person, and often that's the case. Sometimes over time, whether it's our own life or somebody else's, we say, well, I, I don't know that I saw as clearly, but what would it be like to see the actual presence of the Lord visibly? The transfiguration, the same word is used, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all giving their description of the transfiguration, use the same word that Luke uses here, the overshadowing of the presence of God. And so the virgin birth is not about something sexual, it is about the presence of God manifesting itself, continuing this same picture that we've seen throughout Scripture, the presence of God with His people, and how that presence was going to bring about a relationship and a redemption that was very real. And I love this. Verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Now we're never told Elizabeth's age, so I don't know how old you gotta be before an angel calls you old, so don't be upset tonight. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, who was called barren, she is no more. So there's a past tense verb. Let's look at a future tense verb here, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. She was barren, she is now not. For nothing will be impossible with God. In our life groups over the last several weeks, we've gotten a chance to look at different passages. Um, not too far back, we were uh, studying the story of the rich young ruler, if you got a chance to be there that Sunday. You remember the rich young ruler goes away sad when Jesus calls him to give up his wealth and to, to you know, in, in take part in his ministry to come and follow him. And you know, as I was growing up, so many times I just thought, boy, that was a lot for Jesus to ask him to give up. 
But you know, over time, what I've started to think, how, what would you pay to get to stand at the tomb when Lazarus walked out? What would you pay to sit by the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the Lord Jesus and just hear him speak? What would you pay to see people's leprosy be cleansed and sight restored? What would you pay to sit on the mountainside when all those fish and loaves start to expand and to spread? What would you give? Is that not a priceless offer? And that was the offer that was the extended to the rich young ruler. He just couldn't see it because there was something else in the way. And the rich young ruler goes away sad, and Jesus then makes this statement that we are familiar with if we know the story, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. All the disciples began to look around at each other. They said, what in the world? Well, who then can enter heaven? This is what Jesus says. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so the angel delivers a truth to Mary to say nothing will be impossible with God. And yet Jesus says to the rich man, what is impossible is possible with God. You know the difference between a future tense and something look forward to a realized present tense? The Lord Jesus. That the Lord Jesus is who has made what would someday become possible, possible. Aren't you glad we're on this side of the cross where all things have been made possible through Christ? And there was a roundabout way and there was still a direction where we could get to that angle. But you know what? There's a way in which Jesus Christ himself has made the impossible things of eternity possible. And so number four, nothing will be impossible has been realized completely in Jesus. Nothing will be impossible has now been realized completely in Jesus. Jesus has made all things possible. Now, we come to the next set of verses here. Let's start with verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The Holy Spirit begins to speak through Elizabeth as Elizabeth advanced in years compared to Mary and now, you know, six months pregnant awaiting this baby. I don't know uh, what, you know, exactly what time of year it was. I I know sometimes, um, understandably so, my wife was not her most joyful between that sixth month and that ninth month of pregnancy. I think she'd be okay with me saying that. That's just the way it is. And so Elizabeth, in the sense of that and having this young person who's now come in, And she begins to speak to her, and the Holy Spirit causes Elizabeth to do several things. The first is this, causes Elizabeth to embrace humility in the presence of her Savior. To embrace humility in the presence of her Savior. Now, what could have happened with Elizabeth, by the time Mary got there, you know, Mary, you know, she was able to go quickly where she was, so maybe she wasn't too far advanced uh, in her pregnancy, and Elizabeth, as she sees her, you know, she might, she might have been tempted to do what a lot of young parents 
or parents who are new at the whole thing are doing. This might have been, if, if, if Elizabeth was not moved by the Holy Spirit and if she lived in 2022, here's how the conversation might have gone. Well, Mary, I'm glad you're here. Now, let me tell you a little bit of something about how you're going to be feeling here in a few months. Let me just tell you the highs and the lows. Yeah, we've been feeling this. And you're going to want to make sure to do this so you feel better. And let me tell you, we've been reading a book already so that when little John is born, I'm going to make sure that we've got him napping and sleeping through the night, eating only when they're supposed to eat, and making sure that everything's solved by 10 weeks into his entrance into the world. You ever had conversations with young parents? Most of us are the, are the, the most confident when the baby hadn't been born yet. And after that, we're most confident when the baby can't talk yet and can't walk yet. And then if you've ever seen parents of teenagers, they've given up all their confidence. They're just trying to survive. And so Elizabeth has got this where she could very well, we don't, you don't know a ton about Elizabeth, but she could easily have been someone who would not be humble when Mary comes. She would have said, well, let me teach you something. Let me show you something. Let me, you know, be the one to, to bring you along. She doesn't do that. When the Holy Spirit encounters Elizabeth's heart, Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Remember when King David is able to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem finally? It doesn't go well the first time and Yuza loses his life and Finally, when David does enough homework to realize what the right way is to bring the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant's there and David begins to think about what it's going to be like to have the temple and he's interacting with the Lord. And in the midst of all that, as the presence of God is close and as the things of God are on David's mind, after all these years of fighting and war and everything else, his focus is on the Lord in a special way. And David says this, who am I and who is my family? that I should have this come to me, that it should be my privilege to do this. There's this way that the presence of God can't help but bring humility out in us when we're truly understanding and leaning into his presence. If we're growing more confident and more arrogant, we're not growing in our closeness to the Lord. Something's wrong. And so the Holy Spirit working in Elizabeth's life causes humility in the presence of her Savior. Verse 44, she recognizes God at work. That's the second point there, point B. Recognizes God at work. The Holy Spirit causes Elizabeth to recognize God at work. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy or leaped for joy. She recognizes God's doing something already, but there's something happening for what the Lord is doing. She knows already from what's been given to them, perhaps what at this point Zechariah could write out or somehow try to explain with signs and symbols that there was something supernatural taking place there. But she recognizes that God is working even in her baby. Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The third thing the Holy Spirit caused Elizabeth to do was to encourage Mary. To encourage Mary. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that when God's at work, he makes us to be encouragers. That maybe God's chief aim in our hearts and lives is not to try to walk around and figure out everything that's wrong with everybody else. 
Maybe it'd be a whole lot more important to encourage, to affirm, to lift up, to bless other people. I loved what uh, Pastor Max said Sunday, that we want to be an encouraging church. Church that has that heart, the heart of Barnabas, to say, how can I give courage? How can I affirm someone else? Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She recognized that Mary had done uh, what she should. And then lastly, I'd like to read verses 46 to 55 in the time that we have left. Mary becomes a singer-songwriter right at that moment. We don't know if she quoted it, if she sang it. We don't know exactly. But um, what's often called the Magnificat, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed." For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. As a kid, I never knew why we were singing that word all the time. Magnify, magnify. I never understood why that word, I couldn't get it. I was thinking of my microscope at home. I was thinking of a, you know, magnification. Uh, what, do you, what do you call those things that you, you magnifying glass? All I knew you could do with those was fry ants. I never knew what you were supposed to actually do with those things. My soul magnifies the Lord. What in the world is talked about here? Magnification, that what Mary is saying is that may my soul be the lens or the, the tool in which God becomes greater. May my soul be the place where God is brought higher and larger and greater. From the inside out of myself, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You know rejoicing is, right? Joy out loud. Rejoices in God my Savior. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Do you know what Mary's own generation was going to call her? Names. But Mary was able to see past that. Maybe not every day, but enough. Enough. To say, you know what, the long term, the long, uh, excuse me, long term, the, the plan of God over a great stretch of time is that his truth is going to be shown in such a way that the voices that are right now crowding me out are not going to be the voices that are heard in history and certainly not in eternity. She realizes that she's been given a seat at a table that was beyond compare. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Number six, what I've got here for you, your final point. Mary recognizes that the long road of God's deliverance is continuing in his interaction with her. God's long road of deliverance is continuing in his interaction with her. One of my favorite Christian music artists, Rich Mullins, wrote a song that one of the lines goes like this. 
Sometimes I think of Abraham and how one star he saw was lit for me. Remember Abraham looking up in that starry sky and God says, your descendants, those who are part of the promise, are going to be more than the stars you see. Now, some of us, if we look around the sky in high point, we look up and go, well, I don't know how impressive that is. But if you can head out to Nevada in the middle of the desert or somewhere that's got a really great sky and you look up and you can't even number the stars that are up there. What a great thought to think that one of the people that God had in mind even in that moment was you and me if we've trusted in Christ. That the long plan of God's deliverance isn't just for everybody, but it's for each person. God hasn't only loved the collective, He's loved us as individuals. Now, sometimes in our American society, we've got to remember that God hasn't only called us to say, well, me as an individual is what's most important. No, we've got to be reminded that we're part of a great collective of what God is doing. But at the same time, we can't get lost in thinking, well, sure, God had a plan for humanity, but he didn't have a plan for me. No, you'd be missing the point. And Mary realized that in a special way. Because eternity and human history, the promises of God and prophecy have all intersected in one moment in the life of a teenage girl who probably in her family was a forgotten person that belonged to a forgotten town in a forgotten region of a forgotten nation in a world that desperately needed saving. And that was the plan that Jesus had for her and for us. So find hope. The eternal concourse of what God has planned is not down a long road that doesn't intersect with you and your town. But God's way to redemption is through your heart if you'll believe and follow him, trust him, walk with him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us. And Father, would you help us on Perhaps those times where we're wrestling with whether your favor or other favor, others' favor is most important. Lord, would you help us to recognize the worth of walking with you and going where you lead? Father, would you help us to recognize the worth of Jesus, to remember the truth of who he is, that he is literally the proof that our God saves. And so, Father, may we hope in the one through whom all impossible things have been made possible. And, Lord, would you call us to faithfulness and may our soul magnify you and may our mouth and our heart rejoice in what you've done and how you love us and how your plan for all of eternity comes down the road where we are and that you have a place for not only all of us, but each of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.